0: hello everybody uh, the sound on this might not be the perfect it'd be perfect because I'm re-recording it since the file got corrupted when we did it on Sunday morning but uh, let me pray before we get into this sermon Father God we thank you for this morning we thank you for your love for us we thank you for your directive word as we look in the uh, Ten Commandments again today and this, specifically at this second one. We praise you that you are a God that loves us enough to reveal to us uh, your directive words so that we can have the best life possible and that we can glorify your name in ways that uh, are holy and good and honoring to you. And we just uh, pray that you would speak to us this morning as we look at the second commandment. You know, a number of weeks ago, we looked at Paul in Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, in the meeting of the Areopagus. And if you recall, while in Athens, he had been invited to speak to a group of philosophers on Mars Hill. And as to the gospel, that was as to the gospel that he had been proclaiming around Athens. And at that time, Paul said to them, I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And then he proceeded to share Christ with them in Athens as to being that unknown God. And there is actually a story behind this story, which Don Richardson tells us in chapter one of his book, Eternity in Their Hearts. Through much research, he found the origin of the altar to this unknown god based mainly upon a recorded history by Diogenes Laertius, uh, (laughs) who was a Greek author of the third century AD, in a classical work called The Lives of Eminent Philosophers, as well as looking at Aristotle's uh, The Art of Rhetoric and uh, Plato's Laws and a few other resources. But in short the story begins sometime in the sixth century before christ with the city of athens being decimated by a plague and with no explanation or cure in sight it was assumed one of the city's many gods had been offended and so city leaders gathered and they sought to determine which god it was that was offended and find a way of appeasing that god but the problem was that the city of athens had hundreds of gods Their statues littered Mars Hill, if you remember from the passage in Acts. And when all efforts failed to discern which of these it was, Epimenides was brought in as an outside consultant from Cyprus, whom Paul quoted, if you remember, in Acts 17. And Epimenides concluded at that time that none of the known gods of Athens had been offended. Rather, it was some unknown god, and he proposed a possible remedy. He had a flock of very choice sheep kept from food until they were extremely hungry. And then he had these sheep turned loose on Mars Hill in this good pasture. And for any sheep not to have eaten its fill would have been unexplainable. If you know sheep, they eat. Even when they're not hungry, they just eat. (laughs) And they watched carefully to see if any of them would lie down and not eat, even though he was very hungry. And to their surprise, several did. And altars were all erected at each spot where a sheep had lain down there, and and they were all dedicated to this unknown God. And on those altars, every sheep which lay in that spot was sacrificed, and almost immediately the plague began to subside in the city of Athens. But over a period of time, those altars were forgotten. And they began to deteriorate, and attention was given back to all the other hundreds of gods who had done nothing for Athens but just take up space on the hill there. And one altar was later restored and preserved by two older council members who had been part of that process when they were younger. Uh, Centuries later, Paul referred to this altar as the starting point for his sermon on Mars Hill, quoting that very poet Epimenides. Epimenides. And Don Richardson writes that if Athens boasted several hundreds hundred of gods uh, in Epimenides' time, by Paul's day there may have been hundreds more. Idolatry, by its very nature, has a built-in inflation factor. Now remember that idolatry, by its very nature, has a built-in inflation factor. One man, uh, you know, once men reject the the one omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent God in the favor of lesser deities, they eventually discover, to their frustration, that it takes an infinite number of lesser deities to even try to fill the true God's shoes. And so when Paul saw Athens prostituting humankind's sacred privilege of worship upon wood and stone statues, he was appalled and he took immediate action. First, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. You can see that in Acts 17, verse 17. Now, these, these Jews and God-fearing Greeks, they were not practicing this idolatry, so to speak. But they were the people that were most responsible to oppose it, since they had been entrusted with the very words of God, and to call, they were called to be a light to the nations. So you have Jews who have the Hebrew Scriptures You have God-fearing Greeks who are basically, you know, entering into the Jewish religion, and these people had the responsibility to confront these things. But perhaps they had become so accustomed to idolatry, they no longer could mount a, a, a persuasive offensive against it. In any case, Paul launched his own, and he reasoned, like Luke says in that same verse, he reasoned in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And Luke records their reaction. It says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. That's verse 18 of chapter 17. So they heard Paul speak of theos or God, but theos was a very familiar term to them. But they, they used it not as a personal name for one God, but as a general term for any deity. Just as in in English, man means, you know, any man, and it isn't considered suitable as a personal name for one man, right? So the philosophers there also must have known, however, that Xenophanes and Plato and Aristotle, three of the great philosophers, used Theos as a personal name for one supreme god in their writings. God was just a word to them, though, not a personal knowable being. But Paul was saying there is no other God but God, and he is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So what do we learn from that story? God, Well, we learn that God was willing or was calling the Athenians to himself as much as 600 years before Paul even arrived. We learn also that Athenian devotion, like much of ours, was short-lived, that their mistake was to place these altars in the middle of all the rest of the altars, on equal footing with all these other false gods, and they did not renounce the rest of them and confess the one true God that actually did something for them. They just simply added him to the library of false deities. Then we learn, as a result, that they didn't pursue God, and they forgot about him. And the altars went into disrepair, remember. So instead of finding freedom in the one true God, they spent six more centuries in bondage. And then we learn that they found that once men reject the one omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent God in favor of lesser deities, they eventually discover that these false gods will fail them miserably. And we also learn that God is patient, and he sustained that one altar for the day that Paul would show up and tell them once more who that God is and very clearly that it was Jesus Christ. Now this week we look at the second commandment from Exodus chapter 20 where God calls us to uncompromisingly worship him alone, not involving ourselves with all these false idols in life. There are over 1,000 references to idol worship in the scriptures. So it's important. It's a very important subject. Turn with me to page 52 in your pew Bibles, if you have one, and follow along as I read Exodus 24 through 6. It says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow to them or worship them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So 1 John 5.21 urges the same, but very briefly. It says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. That is sound advice as we look at the story of the Athenians, and especially at our situation today in America. Because idols come with consequences. Let me say that twice. Idols come with consequences. We need only to think back to the Israelites when they entered Canaan, the promised land, if you remember that story. You remember that Canaan was a a darkly religious place steeped in idol worship. They didn't yet know Israel's God. And maybe you were taught in Sunday school about idol worship, that people had temples, little statues of wood or stone. They placed them in their home someplace on a mantle, maybe, and they bowed down to them. And it seems very harmless. Why was God so upset other than it wasn't him that they were worshiping? But after all, they just, they didn't even know about him yet, right? So we know that little pieces, you know, we are enlightened modern people, right? We know that little pieces of wood and stone have no real effect or power to harm, do they? And so from Sunday school, we viewed them as bowing to an idol, then going on about their life, going about their farming or whatever. And really, there's no power in that. That's what we think. But what we weren't taught was the actual extent and the form that that worship took. They were worshiping a number of gods. Baal, for one, the supreme deity of many gods, gods, was the male deity of land or fertility, and his title meant landowner. And then you have Ashtoreth, also known as Venus in Rome, Aphrodite in Greece, Ishtar in Babylonia, and some other names. And if you remember a few years back when the the Olympics were held in Greece, uh, Aphrodite rose up out of the, the center of the floor during uh, the opening ceremony, so she's very much alive and well in, in that sense. But she was the goddess of fertility and war, and she was imaged by Asherah poles, and they were basically phallic symbols that decorated the high places all around. And so they believed if these deities saw them in lascivious acts, sexual acts, that they would be aroused and they would bring forth rain, making the land fruitful. And within this religious structure was a temple priesthood of good-looking look, good young folks, most, like, most likely. And as your spiritual act of worship, you would go to the temple and you would perform acts such as orgies, incest, homosexual acts, adulterous acts uh, in, in this spiritual form of worship, which created, obviously, a paternity problem. Babies with not knowing who the father was because people are going to get pregnant. So there was a, conveniently, there was a third god, and his name was Molech. And he was the god of fire, and he demanded child sacrifice. And so he was the solution to the unwanted byproduct of the worship of the other two deities. He was the abortion solution for ancient people, and one reason for God's extreme disgust and anger. So idols come with consequences. Remember that. Israel was not unlike Athens. The history, in short, is that God marked his, his people, marked Israel physically and spiritually before going into this promised land. And after 40 years, they come to the point of going in with, you know, they were led by Joshua into the promised land. And there were the Canaanites and some other groups, and God asked them to go in and live as children of light. In other words, to be as, his witness in a very dark world of idol worship, and all of these practices. But although they served the Lord under Joshua, later they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, the scripture tells us. They served the Baals, they served the asterisks themselves. And so they conquered the Canaanites physically, but they were conquered spiritually by Canaanite idol worship, by Canaanite spirituality. They prostituted themselves to other gods. They wouldn't listen to the judges. They waxed and waned throughout this stuff, all throughout history. They returned to ways that were even worse than their forefathers, the scripture tells us. And God says at one point, I will no longer drive out the nations due to this. And then he uses their enemies to purify his people. In Numbers 25, it even says that the Israelites didn't even wait to enter the promised land before they started to serve these other gods, and 24,000 of them were killed for their disobedience at that time. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 8-22. through Judges chapter 17, verse 6 says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. In Jeremiah eleven thirteen, it says, "You have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah, and the altars you have set up to burn incense to that shameful god Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem." Now that sounds very much like Athens, doesn't it? The point being, is that it is all too easy to be immersed in a culture of idol worship and to have your eyes averted from God to serve these other idols. Athens shows it, Israel shows it, and sadly, America shows it. There's a logical progression for the commandments. First, God says, have no other gods before me. And then, almost as if to clarify, God says to not make any graven images, the term for idol. And then the second commandment is this, this command in two parts. Don't make idols, don't worship them, right? The reason being... It always has devastating consequences, sometimes in the short run, but definitely in the long run. Idols don't have to be made out of wood or stone. We make them nonetheless, don't we? Tim Keller calls them counterfeit gods. I like that. He says, anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So here's the question. What can't you live without? What can't you live without? You know, oftentimes we say things like we can't live without air conditioning or chocolate, but most likely we're joking about that kind of stuff, right? But when it comes to things like a spouse or a child, or maybe our nest egg. A thought of losing that makes it so that we don't want to live anymore. And in that case, that person or that thing may have become an idol. An idol is something that you create, then you worship it. It's a person or an object. It can be intangible like a career or a relationship. We live in a society obsessed with idols. We even have a show called American Idols. It's easy to become far more obsessed with the latest celebrity than with God, isn't it? God says, don't. Don't. Rather, put him first. Not because he's some megalomaniac, but because the minute you put God second is the minute that you fall into the trap of crafting and worshiping an idol which will always fail you. Because idols cannot give you life. They can't. As John Stott says, idols are dead, God is living. Idols are false, God is true. Idols are many, God is one. Idols are visible and tangible, God is visible and intangible. Idols are creatures, the work of human hands. God is the creator of the universe and of all of humankind. So idols are dead, they're untrue, they're the work of our hands. They are our own creations. We invent gods and we worship While the true living creator creator God is waiting and watching and wants our true devotion. We don't need to chase after or invent or worship counterfeit gods. The one true God who who is alive has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so focusing on Jesus is really the antidote to idolatry, isn't it? You know, in Joshua 24 verses 14 and 15, Joshua challenges Israel to make a choice. And this is what he says. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So the choice is before us daily. Who will we serve? Francis Schaefer writes about how many believers think that following God is a choice made at some point in the past. But in this passage from Joshua, Schaefer points out that that word choose is not a once and for all choice. <coughs> Excuse me. Rather, it is a continuous choosing under the safe covering of grace in Christ. Scripture speaks of both being saved in the sense of once and for all, because it is the work of Christ that we did not we didn't do anything to obtain it. But it also uh, speaks of being saved in the sense of being renewed over time, of being changed into the likeness of Christ. In choosing daily to put Christ first, we are actually being saved from ourselves and other outside destructive forces maybe. Diversion into idol worship hamstrings that process, bringing confusion and devastation. It's instinctual, though, to worship what our families do, isn't it? If you can identify the gods that are battling for your heart right now, you can see where they, from where they originate. Did your parents worship work? Well, you'll probably struggle with letting work and achievement sit on the throne. Did your mother worship people's approval? I bet you're overly concerned with with what others think about you. Were your parents addicted to substances? Then you likely struggled in that area as well. See, kids follow parents. They do follow their words sometimes. (laughs) But more so, they really do follow that unspoken lifestyle, don't they? You know, recently I met a young woman in college who was a great ministry leader when she was in college. Uh, she, she's out of college now, excuse me. But in, in college, she was a great ministry leader, and I knew her well at that time. But since she has moved away and she got married, but she married a guy who describes himself as being an agnostic. He doesn't really believe in God. And as a result, she's just drifted away from church. She never goes to church. She doesn't have any sort of spiritual practice to speak of, anything like that. And she had a baby. And I saw her again, and what she said to me was, I'd like to get back to church for the child's sake. Well, that is a mistake in my my mind. Instead, what I believe is the better response is that she should repent for neglecting her worship of Christ. She should come back and put put Jesus first for his name's sake, not even for hers, for his namesake, for his glory. And then over time, her child will see a mother who is in love with Christ, who's walking with God, and most likely her child will follow along in that path. Or at least it'll be made easier for them to accept Christ. There's a great form of idolatry, idol- idolatry, excuse me, uh, prevalent today fostered by cultures drifting away from sound biblical teaching as the paul the apostle paul warned he said for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine second timothy 4 3 for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine and in these pluralistic liberal times many have redefined god we've forsaken the god revealed to us in the scripture We have recast him to comply with our own inclinations and desires. A kinder, gentler God who's infinitely more tolerant of all of our desires than the one who is revealed in the scripture. He is less demanding. He's definitely not judgmental. He is tolerating all kinds of lifestyles without placing guilt on anyone's shoulders. And as this idolatry is propagated by churches... Congregants leave believing that they are worshiping the one true God. However, these, man, these, these man-made, these man made-over gods are created by us, and to worship them is to worship a false idol. Worshiping a God of one's own making is particularly tempting for many whose habits and lifestyles and drives and desires are not in harmony with Scripture. Understanding the contemporary idol's Uh, that we live with, show why there's such a powerful temptation on our lives. Idols are anything that we place ahead of God in life, taking God's place in our hearts. Possessions, careers, relationships, hobbies, sports, entertainment, goals, greed, addictions to alcohol, drugs, gambling, pornography, the list goes on. Some idols in that list are clearly sinful things as according to the scriptures, but many can all, are also good things, things that were meant to be good for us, such as relationships and careers, but we pervert them to be idols. Psalm 115 verses 4 through 8 characterizes, characterizes idols this way. It says, Made by human hands they have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Isn't that interesting? That what we've created has no power, it's not alive, it's dead, and we will be like them because we worship them. James 1, 14 and 15 says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So what that is all saying to us is that we become our idols. When we just follow our desires and we disregard God, they rob us of our senses, they bring confusion, and they deaden our conscience. But rather, it is better to follow 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, in other words, everything in life, right? Do it all for the glory of God. We are not unlike Israel. We are not unlike Athens. Jeremiah's words could be ascribed to America as a new model. When he said, "Everyone, everyone does as they see fit, right? Everyone does as they see fit. That seems to be the motto of our age right now. Idols of old were created to serve human desires of comfort, of wealth, sustenance, sexual fulfillment, power, fame, etc. Baal and Ashtoreth, gods meant to provide power, wealth, comfort, sexual gratification. Molech, a god meant to give personal choice and bodily autonomy, allowing people to gratify themselves, but without the responsibility of parenthood and any value of life whatsoever. Does that sound familiar to you? Does it sound familiar to you? The idols we serve may not be carved in wood or stone, but they serve the same purpose. They are very real and they come with consequences. We hope they will fulfill us, but America has shown that they don't. The longer they reign unchallenged as God's people are silent in witness, the more damage is done to people. Ours is a spiritual malady in America. Let me say that twice. Ours is a spiritual malady in in America. As we worship at the altar of power and wealth and comfort and pleasure and personal choice and unbridled sexuality, the unborn continue to be murdered, kids continue to be shot in schools, crime rises, the economy tanks, kids can continue to be confused about their sexuality and they are making irre- irreversible changes to their bodies need i go on in other words this is our responsibility when we have the remedy to the plague we have the message of christ are we complicit are we complicit in our silence like the jews and the greek fearing god fearing greeks In Athens, we have become, have we become numb to the idol worship that is surrounding us? Idolatry by nature has a built-in inflation factor. And what we learn from Israel in Canaan and the Athenians of Paul's day is still true of our culture, that God is calling people to himself, that our devotion is often short-lived, that we don't really renounce our idols, and that we remake God to fit our desires. And as a result, we don't pursue the one true God, remaining in, and we remain in bondage as a result of that. Once we reject the one true God in favor of idols, we find that they not only fail us, but they destroy us and society. But God is patiently waiting for his people to respond. So what is it that God calls us to do about the plague? It is exactly what Paul did. Keep it simple. Put Jesus first. And preach his message to those around us if we want to see any lasting change. It is Matthew 28:18 through 20 the Great Commission. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you, And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That is our calling. I would urge you after turning this off to sit and have a time of confession. Have a time of confession to the Lord as to what your idols are that are battling for your heart right now. Confess those things, sacrifice them at the altar of Christ, ask for his forgiveness and also ask for him to fill your heart with himself as the central thing that you worship, the only thing that you worship. God bless you guys, and let me pray us out of this. Father, we do confess our idols. We do know that they bring us nothing but pain. They bring us nothing but death. They bring us nothing but confusion. They deaden our conscience. They may feel good in the moment, but they do nothing for us in the long run. So we just pray, Father, that you would make them arise in our thoughts, that you would give us eyes to see where we are worshiping something else other than you, and that you would break the back of that in our lives. We thank you, Father, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.